0: Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at christfellowshipnc.org. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to First Samuel chapter fifteen. As we continue through 1 Samuel, and we will cover all of 1 Samuel 15 this morning, Lord willing. So let me read the passage for us. We want to read God's word. It's one of the most important things, the most important thing we can do together this morning, so we don't want to neglect to do so. So let me read 1 Samuel 15, and then we'll pause and pray and ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of his word. 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites... And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, the Amalekites, you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Let's pray together. Father, I believe you have much you intend to teach us through the truth of your word this morning. And most of all, Father, I think we all need to see that we are so very far from the righteousness you require of us. And yet you have showered your grace and mercy on us. We are here this morning solely because of the finished work of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Father, it is solely because of what Christ has done in our place that we are able to gather this morning. And so we thank you for the abundant, undeserved mercy that you have shown us. Father, we are thankful that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to take out our heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh to awaken our blind eyes. Father, I pray that Your spirit would be at work in us this morning, revealing sins to us, revealing areas of our life where we're acting like Saul and justifying our rebellion and disobedience to you. So Father, I just pray that you would just rip the veil off, rip off the darkness that is covering and instead help us to see ourselves and to repent of our sin and to turn to Christ with hope and repentance that we can receive the forgiveness bought for us on the cross. So Father, I pray that your word would do its work to penetrate our hearts, to help us to fight against sin and to pursue holiness for our eternal good and for the glory of your name. And so Father, I ask and plead with you to guide my words this morning. I pray that you would allow me to only speak what is true of you, what is true of your word, and that you would lead us into all truth again for our good, that we might be conformed to the likeness of Jesus and for the glory of your name. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to 1 Samuel 15, we are arriving at the culmination of what the author has seemed to be continually preparing us for. That is that Saul is a failed king. We've seen evidence of that throughout. We've seen clear evidence of that throughout. But here in chapter 15, it seems that really is where it all comes crashing down, that Saul is a failed king. And so having said that, we need to pay close attention to 1 Samuel 15 because the reality is that we are more like Saul than any of us care to admit. And we need to stare into the mirror that's being held up in front of us this morning, the mirror of our own souls that is the narrative of Saul's life. We need to look at it and see what we need to learn from it, that we not repeat Saul's mistakes and Saul's failures. You see, chapter 15 shows us that God rejects Saul because Saul failed to understand what obedience to the Lord really meant. Ultimately, Saul failed to grasp what the holiness of God really is. He had no understanding of what God's demands mean, what it means to be holy as God is holy. And as I said, if we're being honest, I think we can all admit that in many ways we share in Saul's failures because I mean let's be honest if we read a passage in our Bibles like First Peter chapter one verses fourteen through sixteen, how do we process it? This is what First Peter 1, 14 to 16 says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And I think if we're being honest, if I'm being honest this morning, we read a passage like that and we, we hear what it says. And it says, be holy as he who called you as holy. And what we hear at is be as good as you can be, <laughs> right? Be better than the people around you. But it's not what God says to us in first Peter chapter one. He says, be holy like he is holy, and it's not just part of your life. He says, in all of your conduct, in every moment of your life, in every part of your life, in all of your conduct, be holy as God is holy. You see, it's easy to shake our heads at Saul and disbelief, but if there was a narrative written of the intimate details of your life and my life, it wouldn't be very pretty either. Right? Let's just be honest about that. Now, I say that not to excuse Saul or to condemn us. I say it so that we can, Lord willing, learn from Saul's failures, that we can grow in our faith so that we can commit ourselves to the pursuit of holiness to which we have been called. And I say it so that we can put away any sense you may continue to carry with you, that I may continue to carry with me of our own self-righteousness that we tend to harbor in our hearts. We can just put it away and fall before the foot of the cross and the all sufficient work of Jesus in our place. So by God's grace, let's let's look closely at Saul's failure and his rejection. And let's, Lord willing, learn how we can grow in the pursuit of holiness in our own lives. So here as we see Saul's failures, I think there are four lessons this passage teaches us about the pursuit of holiness. And here they are. Number one, we must understand God's standard of obedience. We must understand God's standard of obedience. Number two, we must beware of the deceitfulness of sin. Number three, we need to listen to the piercing power of the Word of God. And number four, we must recognize the evidence of an unrepentant heart. Now, we're going to get into these four lessons a little bit later, just They're going to be on the screen. You can hold them there. But before we kind of get into that, we need to be sure that we have an understanding of the events that happen in verses 1 through 9. So I want to take a few moments to review kind of the narrative that happens here at the beginning of chapter 15. Be sure we understand what Saul was commanded to do, what Saul did. And then after that, when Samuel hears from God, hears God's view of what happened and rebukes Saul, we hear Saul's response That's where we'll get into these lessons, beginning in verse 10. So let's take just a few moments to understand what it is exactly that's happening here in verses 1 through 9. So you look there at verse 1 of chapter 15, we have a clear statement from Samuel to Saul. He first reminds Saul of who he is. You've been anointed to be king over God's people. That's the role that you have. So you need to listen to what I'm going to say to you. And in verse two, he gives the clear command from God. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So the first important thing we need to see is that first phrase of verse two. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. So what is that referencing? What is it that Amalek did to Israel when they were escaping long after God's miraculous and powerful rescue from his people out of Egypt, from the slavery in Egypt? They walked through the Red Sea. They're, they're not yet wandering in the wilderness. They haven't gotten there yet. They're heading toward Mount Sinai where they're going to receive the commandments. So, so it's not long after they escape from Egypt. In fact, it's right after the first time they demand water and Moses strikes the rock and the water comes gushing out. Right after that happens, Exodus 17 says Amalek was the aggressor and out of nowhere, undeserved, attacks Israel as they are heading out of Egypt. You're probably a little bit more well known with this event than you may realize because this is the event when the Lord gives the people victory over the Amaleks, over Amalek, and he gives them victory as long as Moses keeps his arms in the air. If you remember that story, if you were a child in church, you learned that story. And as long as Aaron and her are holding up his arms, they have victory over the people. So that's the Amalekites that they're fighting in that moment. And God gives Israel victory over the Amalekites, even though they tried to, the, the Amalekites tried to ambush God's people. But then the key verse in Exodus 17 comes in verse 14. So after the battle's over and God has led his people to victory over the Amalekites, Exodus 17, 14 says this, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God says, I am going to do this. And then 40 years later, after the wilderness wanderings, they're at the edge of the promised land. If you remember, Moses is not allowed to go in. But in Deuteronomy, Moses is reviewing the law with God's people. And Moses reminds them of what God said he is going to do to the Amalekites. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 19, this is what Moses says to God's people on the edge of the promised land. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you and the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And now as we come to First Samuel chapter 15, this is almost 400, maybe a little over 400 years later. And God is saying, remember both my promise, Exodus 17, I will blot them out and remember my command, Deuteronomy 25, you shall blot them out. 400 years later, the time has come. By the way, just a reminder that God doesn't operate on our timescale. He is a patient God. He is a long-suffering God. He operates on His timescale, and now, 400 years later, the time has come for God to fulfill His word. It is time for the destruction. Of the Amalekites. And so God tells Saul to go wipe them out. You see that in verse 3 go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, listen, I know that verse 3 is troublesome. Why would God command his people to kill every child and infant in a nation? What did the child and the infants do? They didn't attack anyone. They didn't kill anyone. And often people use this to destroy or try to undermine our confidence in God's word, our confidence in God's goodness, and God's justice, and God's righteousness. They say things like, doesn't that make God guilty of genocide to kill an entire ethnic group, both man, woman, child, and infant? These are the kinds of things that Bible skeptics accuse God of. It is a hard but important question to deal with and to ask and to answer. So, So I want you to know that what we're going to do is take next week, and we're going to spend an entire sermon next week dealing with the hard questions that come out of this chapter. So I just want you to know that it's a preview for next week because these questions come up time and again in the Old Testament, and we don't have time to deal with it this morning to get a full understanding of what the driving main point of first samuel 15 is but yet at the same time i don't want to just skirt over it and act like this isn't a serious thing that we need to interact with and we need to learn about that's never my desire we always want to deal with the hard things in god's word and i don't want you taken off guard at some point in the future when when someone says to you well how can god be good if he commands infants and children's and children to be killed by his people so it's an encouragement to you, right? Come back next week and and hear how to understand this, how we interact with this, where God commands his people to slaughter infants. And by the way, as part of that sermon also, we're going to deal with the other heavy weighty question that arises from this passage, where it both in one chapter says, God regrets something. He regrets that he makes Saul king. And yet in the middle of the chapter, it also says, God does not have regret, like How does that work together in one chapter? So that's all next week. It's still chapter 15, but it's going to be a separate sermon dealing with those hard issues. So I just want you to be aware of that. So, But what we see here, that's all next week. So what we see here now, though, is this clear command from Samuel to Saul. And he says, I want you to wipe them all out. Now, by the way, just to quickly, briefly answer the question about how can God have everyone wiped out? It's just to remind you that wherever we land on how we deal with this issue of God calling on all men, women, children to be be wiped out, what we have to rest in is that the Bible is clear that God is always perfectly just. Always. He always and only gives people individually or, or as a group what they deserve. So we'll struggle with how that works next week, but just I want to make that clear. So Saul prepares to go into battle. He gathers 210,000 people. He goes in to the city. Now he does allow the Kenites, verse 6, to escape. By the way, the Kenites are the descendants of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and they did treat God's people well. So he allows them to escape. The Kenites leave, and Saul goes in, and verse 7 says he defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur the king of the Amalekites, 8 and 9 are key. He, Saul, took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted everyone else to destruction. But Saul, you hear that? Saul and the people, not the people, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fat calves, the lambs, and all that was good and did not utterly destroy them. So this is what has happened. God said, destroy everything. Saul decided I'll destroy destroy some things, right? Even most things, but not all things. And so the key question becomes, what does God think of this? What does God think of partial obedience? And what we're going to see is that there is no biblical category for partial obedience. You either obey or you disobey. Right, That's what this passage is going to make clear. That's the standard of God's holiness. So let's begin to look at these four lessons now about pursuing holiness in our lives for the glory of God. And the first lesson we need to see is that we must understand God's standard of obedience. Look there with me at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, at this point, Samuel knows nothing of what has gone down in Saul's battle with the Amalekites. All he knows is what God has told him. And God comes and he tells him, look, Saul has not done what I commanded him to do. He has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Now, the first thing he says is that he regrets that he made Saul king. Now, again, we're going to deal with how that works next week. But at this point, it's sufficient to say This is telling us that God was grieved over Saul's disobedience. He was grieved over Saul's disobedience. He wasn't pleased. It did not bring God to light that Saul partially obeyed or even mostly obeyed. No, he was grieved that Saul did not do what he was commanded. And that becomes even more clear in the next two statements. Do you see that there in verse 11? He has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. This is really important to see. God does not grade on the curve. Now, some of you have no idea what it means to grade on the curve because that doesn't happen anymore in schools. But to grade on the curve, just to briefly summarize, it means that your grade is based on how you do compared to everybody else in your class who takes the test. So if you get 80 out of 100 but everybody else got 79 out of 100 or less, you get the A because you did better than everybody else. That's what it means to grade on the curve. And often we think that God grades on the curve. As long as we do better than everybody else around us, as long as we get most of the way there, then surely that's what God wants from us. But no, that's not what it says. When, When Saul mostly obeyed God, God says he rejected him. God calls it turning back from following him. He says that he did not perform my commandments. I mean, think about this for a second. Saul obeyed in the sense that he wiped out 99.9% of every human being among the Amalekites. He spared one, Agag. In our human perspective, Saul was 99.9% obedient. And he killed most of the animals. They just kept the best of the animals. I don't know what the percentage is, 10%, 20%. So most of the animals, the vast majority of the animals, he wiped out 80% obedience, right? That's what we would call it. So let's say you average that out, right? 90% obedience from Saul. That's what Saul gave, 90% obedience. And what does God call it in verse 11? He says, he turned back from following me and he has not performed my commandments. And it caused God to grieve, to regret that he made Saul king. It could not be more clear what God thinks about partial obedience. He simply calls it disobedience. God is holy, and he therefore demands and expects full obedience to what he commands. That is God's standard. And the moment we begin to demean his standard of obedience, we also demean the holiness of God himself. Now we're told in verse 11 that this made Samuel angry. We're not told why. We don't know if he was angry with Saul, angry with God. It it was probably a whole mixed bag of emotions. It's okay to communicate anger to God that's communicated in faith. It's better to be honest with God than to just hide it in and not be honest like It's okay to cry out to the Lord and express your frustration, your anger with the situation. But in the end, Samuel rests in God and understands that what God has said is true, that Saul has failed and he has turned his back on God's standard of obedience. But you see, here's the problem. We all live in a fallen world. And even though, Lord willing, you are you are a redeemed child of God, you still have the lingering effects of the fall. We still have sin-stained hearts and fallen minds. And our sin-stained hearts and fallen minds are set on being like Saul and justifying and excusing so-called partial obedience. We do it all the time. And therefore, God's standards are hard for us to grasp. And that's why we need lesson number two. We need to beware the deceitfulness of sin. Look there with me, beginning in verse 12. Samuel rose early in the morning. He's on his way to meet Saul in the morning, and he doesn't know where he is. And so someone says to Samuel, look, here's what Saul's been up to. You see that in verse 12? Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Now, we just have to pause here for a minute. Saul is so confident that he has done what is good and righteous and glorious, that he built a monument to remember it by. (laughs) This is staggering to think about. It just continues to show that for Saul, it's all about him always. I mean, he thinks he's done so well, right? that The distance between God's view of what Saul did and Saul's view of what Saul did is so far apart. Saul says, what I did is so good that I need to build a monument to remember it by. God says, it's so terrible that I'm rejecting you as a king and you have brought grief and regret to my heart. (laughs) That's what the deceitfulness of sin does, brothers and sisters. And we're only getting started with Saul's deceit. It It gets far worse because as Samuel arrives, he doesn't even wait for Samuel to speak. Saul comes running to him. You see that in verse 13, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. It is the exact opposite of what God told Samuel the night before. God said to Samuel, he has not performed my commandments. Saul says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He is so treacherously deceived by his own sin. And so Samuel confronts him in one of the most glorious confrontations in all the Bible, right? In verse 14, really, Saul, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep, and the lowing of oxen. The evidence is all around you, Saul, that you did not perform the commandment of the Lord. It is obvious that you did not do what was asked of you. And then Saul begins his justification and deflection. Notice what the pronoun is. The first pronoun to come out of Saul's mouth is what? They, (laughs) those people, they're the ones who did it. They brought them from the Amalekites The people spared the sheep, the oxen. That's why you hear them. It's because of what they did. But what did God tell us in verse 9? What did the divinely inspired word of God tell us in verse 9? Saul and the people spared the sheep, the oxen. Saul did it. He can deflect all he wants. Saul did it. And Samuel knows he did it, which is why in verse 16, Samuel says to Saul, just stop. Just stop with the excuses Let me tell you what God thinks about what you have done. And so Saul says, well, speak. And so Samuel makes four clear statements. And I want you to see these because Samuel makes four clear statements, but I want you to see that because Saul rejects each of them individually. He says, though you're little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? In other words, quit pretending like you don't have an important role. And here's the four statements that Samuel makes in verse 18. Number one. The Lord sent you on a mission. Number two, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. Number three, fight against them until they are consumed. In other words, until you kill everyone. Number four, verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Notice, by the way, at the end of verse 19, again, Samuel calls what Saul has done evil. 90% obedience is evil in God's view. Now, those four statements Samuel makes, and now listen to how, in verse 20, Saul refutes each of them with the words, I have. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. I have done everything asked of me, is what Saul is saying, essentially. Verse 21, But the people they took of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, and they did it to sacrifice to the Lord your God and Gilgal. So not only does he deflect to the people, he's also making excuses for them, saying they did it in order to offer a sacrifice. He's justifying their disobedience. But by the way, notice again that once again, Saul calls God when he's speaking to Samuel, the Lord your God, not the Lord my God. He's already separating himself from God even here. You see, Saul simply refuses to own up to what he has done. It sounds a lot like Adam in the Garden of Eden, right? Genesis chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Adam and Eve have hidden after they ate of the forbidden fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. And God approaches in Genesis chapter 3, and he speaks to Adam, verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, <laughs> the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the, the fruit of the tree and I ate, right? It's her fault, right? This is what Saul is doing. It's their fault. They disobeyed. Why are you talking to me, God? Talk to her. Saul saying, why are you talking to me, Samuel? Talk to the people. They're the ones at fault. Right, Saul is so blinded by his sin and his arrogance. He is completely deceived by sin, pride, and selfishness. He cannot wrap his mind around why what he has done was such a big deal. In his mind, he was doing quite literally monumentally great. As one commentator puts it, quote, The very sinfulness that leads to disobedience often blinds the sinner to the reality of his or her disobedience. Now listen to this. But as in the case of Saul, a clear conscience is no guarantee of innocence. A clear conscience is no guarantee of innocence. Saul had a clear conscience. <laughs> he thought he had done really, really well. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we have to remember Jeremiah seventeen nine that tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Let me repeat that again. Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is deceitful above all things. We must be wary of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. We are experts at justifying our sins. We are really good at it, just like Saul was really good at it. This is why we must be on guard as God's people against the deceitfulness of sin. This is what the author of Hebrews reminds us of in Hebrews three twelve and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin is able to blind you and me to the reality of our sin. It causes us to be like Saul and to believe that we are excelling when we are instead actually turning our backs on God. That's what the deceitfulness of sin is capable of. It's why the warning comes to us in Hebrews 3 that we need to commit to guard one another from falling into that darkness and that blindness that Saul himself fell into. It's why we need each other, brothers and sisters. It's why the author of Hebrews also says to us in Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Because when you do that, you risk falling into the deceitfulness of sin. And that's a place, trust me, you don't want to be. So the local church isn't something we attend, it's something we commit ourselves to so that we can love one another well enough to guard one another, to exhort one another, so that none of us will be hardened by this ever-present threat of the deceitfulness of sin. Because we love, we love to put our conscience at ease with two words, good enough, good enough. But yet God says to us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And our temptation is to say, I've loved the Lord with a good bit of my heart. I loved him with most of my strength. But that's not what the command says. It says, or, or what about what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 35? I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. You and I will give an account for every careless word we speak. Not most of them, not some of them, all of them, every word. I'm going to be spending a lot of time giving account. (laughs) Let's be honest or as we read earlier at the start of the sermon, 1 Peter 1, to 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, the danger of the deceitfulness of sin is that it threatens to blind us to just how sinful we are. And that results in us wanting to build monuments to our self-righteousness when we should be beating our chest like the tax collector in Jesus' story that says, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, the deceitfulness of sin makes us run away from Jesus and not toward the cross. When you think you're doing well, you don't turn to the gospel. You don't turn to the cross every day. But when you know just how far you are from God, when you know just how unholy you are, then every day you wake up giving praise to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he came and humbled himself and lived a perfect life in your place and laid down his life on the cross that you might have eternal life. And he bore the wrath that you deserved in himself for every careless word you spoke, for every moment where your life lacked holiness, for every moment you didn't love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your heart, with all your mind. And I don't know about you, but that's a lot of moments in my life, brothers and sisters. And so let's just put self-righteousness to death as we see God's standard of obedience. Now, this doesn't excuse sin. I'm not saying, well, let's turn to the cross and be different and different about sin. No, I'm saying pursue the holiness that God has called you to with every fiber of your being. Don't make excuses about being 90% of the way there. But when you fail, know that you have an all-sufficient Savior who will forgive and who will show mercy. And that's why we, number three, need to have this third lesson. We need to listen to the piercing power of the word of God, the piercing power of the word of God. Listen to what Samuel says to Saul. Saul says, look, the people, the reason they spared the sheep is because they wanted to sacrifice to God. And Saul, Samuel simply says, look, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Look, Saul, just put the excuses to rest, Saul mistook the outward signs and symbols as being what God desires most. But Samuel says what God delights in is simply obeying his commands. Samuel tries to justify his sin by assuming and and pretending like he knows what God might want instead of listening to what God has said that he wants. Do you see the distinction between those two things? Our job isn't to try to figure out what God might want, is to do what God has said that he wants. Saul said, well, God might want these animals sacrificed. God said, I want them all killed, all of them, wipe them out. So Samuel says, look, the Lord does not have delight, great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices when compared to obeying the voice of the Lord because to obey is better than sacrifice. To actually listen to what God says is better than the fat of rams. What Samuel is making clear is that disobedience is a stench in the nose of the Lord. That outward symbols of obedience, when you're actually disobeying in your heart, does not bring delight to the Lord. He wants obedience fully, all the way, period. It is not your job, it is not my job to decide, to try and decide what commands we should obey, and which ones we get to toss to the side. It's not our job to assume God will want us to disobey one of his commands in one area of our lives to justify disobedience in another one. In other words, you shouldn't lie on your taxes so that you can give more money to the church, right? Now, you could justify that. Hey, I'm going to be able to give God more money if I cheat here, then he can have more. Now, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? Give to Caesars what is Caesars. Give to God what is God's. Submit to and obey your governing authorities. You know, in our modern day, there's all kinds of justifications for sexual sin, for not committing to those kinds of relationships inside a marriage of one man and one woman. And, and, and people make all kinds of justifications with that. Hey, well, if I, if I live with my girlfriend, if I live with my boyfriend, if I live with my fiance, then It'll probably put us in a better position to not get divorced when we finally get married. And so our motivation is to honor God by having a marriage where divorce doesn't happen. God says, no, that's disobedience. And in fact, statistics say it actually makes your marriage worse, not better, by the way. But nevertheless, that's an argument some people try to make. Well, we have to try things out together for a little while. God says, no, it's disobedience. Repent of it. Put it to death in your life. There are even those who take good things like time with family and they prioritize time with family over and above and make it much more important than a commitment to the local church. So if those two things come into conflict, they avoid commitment to the local church because of they say, well, I need to have time with my family. Look, time with your family is good, but a time with your family keeps you from being committed to a local church. It's an idol in your life. And you're in danger of being called up in the deceitfulness of sin. So don't use obedience in one area of your life to excuse this kind of disobedience in another area. Just don't do it. God says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's a command. Commit yourself to it. You see, we need powerful truth like these words to tell us just to speak truth to us. Like, don't make excuses. Verse 23 says, rebellion is as of the sin of divination. What Samuel is saying to Saul is that when you rebel against the Lord because you think you know better than God, it's as if you were trying to predict the future. You don't know better than God. Don't try to be a prophet. Don't try to practice divination. Don't presume upon God. Just obey him and trust him. It is idolatrous and divination to do otherwise. And therefore, Samuel says, Saul, your 90% obedience is utter evil and wickedness, and you have been rejected from being king. Now, we need this kind of powerful truth just to speak to us, to make us aware of our sinfulness. But the question is, did it accomplish that in Saul's life? Is there fruit of genuine repentance in Saul's heart? Well, let's look at this final lesson in our pursuit of holiness. We have to recognize the evidence of an unrepentant heart. We can even deceive ourselves into thinking we are repentant when we actually are not and what you're going to see is Saul is clearly not ultimately repentant. And it becomes clear as we look through the details. First, we see this in verse 25. Saul says, I've sinned. So he, at least to some level, has had knowledge, understanding what's going on here. He says, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So far, so good. Verse 25, however, it goes all through else. Now therefore. "'Please pardon my sin and return with me "'that I may bow before the Lord.'" All Saul ultimately cares about is Samuel sticking with him so he can be respected by his people. And it may not be clear in verse 25, but it is crystal clear in verse 30 when Saul says, "'I have sinned, yet honor me now "'before the elders of my people.'" Can you imagine? You are a wicked, evil king, Saul. You have disobeyed the living God. He has rejected you. And it's almost like Saul says, yeah, I'm sorry. Now, can you go honor me in front of everybody? Right? There's no godly sorrow in Saul's heart. All Saul cares about is his reputation. All he cares about is his reputation. He wants his reputation to be protected. And we know that it's not genuine repentance because God shows mercy to those who are genuinely repentant. And once again, we're reminded that the kingdom is being taken from Saul. And verse 29 says, it is a fixed outcome. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. He is not a man that he should have regret. The kingdom is being taken from you. It's being given to someone else. It's over, Saul. The Lord has rejected you. Furthermore, once again, Saul repeats the words at the end of verse 30 to Samuel, the Lord your God. He is still keeping himself at a distance from God. He is refusing to say the Lord, my God. It is all about Saul. And the last piece of evidence that Saul was not repentant is because when someone repents, not only do they turn away from their disobedience, they turn toward obedience. So if Saul was repentant, the next thing he should have done is say, bring me Agag and let me do what God told me to do. But he doesn't do it. So Samuel has to take care of it. Now listen, I get it. Verses 32 and 33 are gruesome. There's a lot of difficult things we read in the Bible. And we'll deal with this next week, as I said, as I preview the sermon for next week. But this is God's justice being executed by God's prophet. And Agag was executed as he should have been to begin with. Samuel never should have been the one to have to do this. So you see, Saul's lack of repentance is evident. And that number one, what Saul is most concerned about is his reputation and the consequences for his sin. Look, there's nothing wrong with repenting when you get caught. In fact, sometimes I hate that phrase. Well, he's only sorry because he got caught. Look, if you're genuinely sorry and God uses you getting caught to bring about sorrow, praise be to God. David repented of his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah when Nathan confronted him. David repented because he got caught, but it was genuine repentance So the issue here isn't Saul is sorrow or repentant because he got caught. The issue is he's not sorrowful. When you're repenting, all you need to be concerned about is your relationship with the Lord. Let other people take care of the consequences. It's not your job to demand honor when you're repenting. You leave that up to God. You leave that up to other people. You do the right thing. You say you're sorry. You repent of your sin and the chips fall where they may. You don't demand honor when you repent of your sin before the Lord. And here's Saul demanding, okay, sorry, sorry, Samuel. Now be sure everybody thinks a lot of me. That is the polar opposite of repentance. And repentance should always be joined with the pursuit of obedience moving forward. Not that you're going to do it perfectly. We're all going to fail again. But you repent, you turn away from your sin, and you pursue obedience to the Lord And it's clear that Saul had no desire to do that to the degree that Samuel had to step in and he had to bring about the obedience that Saul should have done in the first place. Now, the last two verses are are sobering. Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house and gave you Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. This is Saul now being permanently cut off from the word of the Lord. That's what this represents. Samuel was God's prophet. He was the one who would bring the word of the Lord to Saul. And with this departure, the king now had cut off access to God's word. It is the final step of his failure. And brothers and sisters, this is the danger of the deceitfulness of sin. You can put yourself in a position that you are so deceived, that your heart is so hardened, that you're so cut off from the things of God. You remove yourself from God's people and you remove yourself from the piercing power of the Word of God, you need to hear to bring you out of your stupor. Don't let that happen in your life, brothers and sisters. Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Let's exhort one another, as long as it's called today, so that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, as we conclude, we, we should feel the weight of this passage. We should feel a weight of what does it mean to pursue holiness? What does it mean to pursue obedience to the Lord? I am so far from who God has called me to be. I am just as guilty as Saul with the with a 90 out of 100 at best. I'm probably like 60 out of 100, probably worse than that, right? I, I don't even come close to doing what God has called me to do. What does that mean for me? I'm not holy as he is holy. Well, yes, fill the weight of it. But as you fill the weight of it, remember you have a Savior who is 100 out of 100. He lived a perfect, spotless, sinless life. He never once sinned. He never once failed to love the Lord as God with all his heart, all his mind, all his strength, and all his soul. He never once failed to have faith in his Father. He never once spoke a careless word. He never once was something short of holy. And his life through faith in Christ is given to you so that on the last day, all who have faith in Christ will be counted righteousness in his perfect, righteous life. And in his death, he took the wrath we all deserved in our place so that though we are wicked rebels who only always partially obey the Lord, we have an all-sufficient Savior who stands in our place. He is the promised King who will never fail us. The kingdom will never be taken from him. And one day in the new heavens and the new earth, we will worship before his throne. But until that day, let us fight against every sin and temptation that would hinder our fellowship with him. Let us strive after God's standard of holiness. Let us not salve our conscience with partial obedience. Let us beware of the deceitfulness of sin. Let us heed the piercing power of the word of God and pursue genuine repentance. And then when we do fail... Let us fall into the arms of a merciful Savior who never has. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the hard words of 1 Samuel 15. We are thankful for this mirror that we can look into, that we may be warned of our temptation to justify our sins and disobedience. So, Father, I just pray that you would put to death all self-righteousness that lingers within us. I pray that you would put to death all justifications and excuses that we make for rebelling against you, that we would see it for what it is. It is not partial obedience. It is turning away from you. And so, Father, even as we recognize that, I pray that you would teach us what it means to repent when we see that truth in our life, that we are so far from the holiness you demand of us. We are so far from obeying the commands that you have given us, and yet we have a Savior who has lived in our place and died in our place. So I pray that you would both protect us from indifference to our sin, and also falling into despair over our sin. And instead, help us to look to Jesus, where we find the freedom of forgiveness and the power of obedience. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.